I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. You're defining the light by being the dark. You know, I don't think there's anybody on that show that revels in what we have to do as commanders, but we revel in the messaging of the show. All of our shades of gray down to dark, dark black. You don't own me, I'm not your property. So take a shifty little bitty eye of me. So I tried to play Putnam as authentically as I could and tried to make them not think that they were behaving badly you know they think they're doing something that is gonna you know save the world welcome to eyes on gilead our podcast dedicated to the handmaid's tale there is a lot going on in this show and we think it helps to talk it out after every episode and we seize upon every opportunity to talk it out with the stars and the creators of the show if and when the opportunity knocks which is what we're doing today I'm Fiona Williams, and when I'm not doing this, I'm Head of Curation at SBS On Demand, where you can watch all episodes of Season 5 to date. At the time of recording, there is one more to go, and we are all hanging out for that finale when it drops on Wednesday. Now, we do a lot of call-outs to our Twitter hashtag every episode. It's hashtag Eyes on Gilead, as you would know. And look, it's the best thing about Twitter, especially now. There's conversations and theories aplenty. And also, it helped us find our guest today. Twitter brought us together because we had a listener, Troy David Johnston, make a suggestion that we speak to Commander Putnam in the wake of his dramatic exit from the show. Oh, and here's where I should say, belatedly, that you need to be caught up on Handmaid's Season 5 if you're listening because we're going to spoil things and I maybe just did. But anyway, Troy David Johnston said to us, can you interview Stephen Kunkin? Because we all loathe Warren Putnam and wouldn't it be fun to love him like we do and doubt? Ha. It's true, Troy, and Stephen saw that and he said he was up for it. He jumped on the hashtag and said, I can't promise that anyone is as lovable as Anne Dowd, but I'm honoured to give it my best shot. So, yada, 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 our friends at MGM made it possible. So, Sanakadar and I have jumped into our Zoom room for a chat with Stephen Kunkin, also known as the former Commander Warren Putnam. He's a creepy commander, but he's a thoroughly lovely guest. So, Enjoy. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, what a pleasure. We were speculating about your time zone. I am, uh, I'm in Brooklyn, New York. So I'm on, what am I, 11 o'clock. Nice and late. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's nice and late, but you know, today was Halloween here. So we have like, I had a kid jacked up on sugar. So <laughs> we're not that far off the normal bedtime. Just, um, Amazing. Say no more. Yeah. Did you dress up? What, what was your... No, no, I did not. I did not dress up. It's madness where I live in Brooklyn. There's like near where she goes to school. It's I've never seen people like it. It's there's just thousands and thousands of people. And I think also because COVID had sort of like put everybody in lockdown. People, it was like 15 Halloweens put into one year. Oh, wow. So, oh, yeah. my gosh. Everyone's back. It's pretty were there nuts. any Putnams? Were there any Putnams? That there, were, there were definitely handmaids, but there were no Putnams. There were no Putnams. <laughs> All you needed was like a big, a big red dot right in the center. Yeah. <laughs> 
so true. Well, look, Stephen Kunkin, aka the late Commander Warren Putnam, welcome to Eyes on Gilead. Oh, such a pleasure. You were last seen sprawled on the front lawn of a uh, Gilead fine dining establishment, um, but you do appear to be in remarkable good health. So <laughs> thank you for. <laughs> thank you. It's amazing. We're just getting out of Gilead will do to a person, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and look, it's only fitting that we give you a proper send off. We, you know, we can't let such a character pass by without incident. But look, Commander Putnam got a rousing farewell on Twitter, um, which is to say <laughs> that people were kind of dancing on his grave. <laughs> they were. They should be. He was, he was a rough fella. <laughs> yeah. Did you catch any of that discourse, shall we say, on, on Putnam's demise? Like what are some fan responses that you've, you've spotted? Yeah, I've seen all over the place. You know, some people are more articulate in how they in how they go about it. I put it through a kind of Rosetta Stone and, and take it as a compliment because he's, you know, at the end of the day. I mean, sure, there's some things when people are like, you know, they juxtapose my picture next to Gollum. <laughs> you know, and they say the same. They say it's the same guy, and you know, I, and you have to sort of go. Well, I watch TV. I know how when people come into my living room on the weekly basis, and I, I get attached to them as as a character. It's hard to see them as anything but. So it's it is it's a huge compliment, and he, I'm fully aware that he he was a bad fella. There there was not much going on there that we we could all find a rousing cheer mm. for. So, but it's thrilling. It, it is really thrilling to play those people in Gilead. I mean, I, they're complicated roles. They may not want complicated things. I think often these guys, be it Fred Waterford or Putnam or Calhoun or whoever, want kind of simple things at the end of the day. Uh, they take what they want, but to get yourself in that headspace can be, can be complicated, I guess, as an actor. But you're defining the light by being the dark. And, and, you know, I don't think there's anybody on that show that revels in what we have to do as commanders, but we revel in the messaging of the show and the fact that we present, you know, an alternative to someone like June or, you know, Moira or whoever else, because that those stories mean nothing without just playing these people authentically and as written. And they do a great job at writing us as in all of our shades of gray down to dark, dark blacks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. How did you um, prepare to play the role? Did you research any particular baddies to model Putnam off of? You know, it's interesting because when this came across my desk as, a, as a, an audition and I, I looked at it, it was pre where we are in our country now in, in the United States with the last administration, not the Biden administration, but the Trump administration. And I think we were poised to believe that we were about to break the glass ceiling and that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. And I had read this book when I was a kid. You know, I read it in, in high school. And when I came back to it, I was I sort of like, I was curious as to why do it now. It seemed like it was going to be this kind of you know, cautionary tale. I couldn't quite figure out what was just hiding around the corner. And and that's my own naivete because it, people clearly knew it was right around the corner. But when I finally made my way up to Toronto on my first visit, I got pulled in when I was pulling my, um, my work visa in Toronto, I got pulled in by one of the Toronto border guards and it was right after the election. And he and they said, Mr. Kunkin, can I can I see you? And I got pulled up and I was like, I hope my paperwork's in order. And he said, What did you do? Hey, what did your country do? <laughs> no, wow. and, I was like, and I was like, What what do you mean? He's like, We think of you like our big brother. I don't are you guys gonna be okay? Oh, and I was like, and I just remember thinking, wow, this is, you know, 
this is the real deal. And now I'm going to, if this show goes, it's no longer a cautionary tale, but it, it is a protest piece. And it was amazing to sort of go into it. Now we find out as we go along more and more about who these people are. So I came in knowing what I knew about Janine and I knew what the life of a commander was, but you know, one of the great things about working on a show like this, that it evolves over five years is you find out more and more about your people as you go. I think it's rare that anybody comes in on day one and knows where they're going by season five. Mm. So you kind of have to, they give you breadcrumbs and you're moving forward and developing as you go. And it's a kind of symbiosis between the actors and the writers. And if they're good, they're listening to each other. And these writers happen to be fantastic. And the actors, present company excluded, are all fantastic. And, you know, I didn't, I, I don't know that I looked at baddies from history, but the baddies, to get back all the way to your original question, <laughs> I think the, the baddies that I respond to are the people who feel like they're you and me and mm. just with making poor choices. <laughs> because if you make them just a complete out and out monster, they're less scary because you just point to them as they're, oh, that's other, that could really never happen. And I think the most compelling as a, as a viewer and a fan of the show, and there are big chunks of the show that I'm not in, the things that I find most compelling are the flashbacks where, mm -hmm. you you know, it's those frog boil moments that, that, you know, Margaret Atwood writes about where yeah. you put the, the frog in the bathtub and they slowly raise the temperature. And it is, it's like those scenes when, Suddenly, you know, a woman can't come into work or whatever. And and you just feel that world. And we have felt it certainly in our country over the last four years. You, you just feel those liberties mm. hanging by a thread or one get picked away. And, you know, I remember one of the trips that I was back and forth. It, it seemed like my entire time up in Toronto, I was in high relief to something that was going on in the United States. So I was up there right after the election. I was up there for the inauguration. I was up there when the travel ban went into, into mm -hmm. effect. And I remember flying back and forth right when the travel ban went into effect. And I got to the Toronto to Pearson airport flying back. And there were these volunteer lawyers, Canadian lawyers, mm -hmm. trying to help people across the border. And it, it, it was just like, well, we were just, we were just filming that. We were literally just filming that. And now it's, it's here. So, I mean, I, I tried to play Putnam as authentically as I could and tried to make them not think that they were behaving badly. You know, they think they're doing something that is going to save the world. And then they get corrupted quickly. I think there's an evolution to Putnam from season one to season five. And yeah. um, I was really interested to see where where they wrote him, I think, you know, to steal another piece of like literature, the closer you get to the ring, you know, of power in this world, the more, more nothingness there is and the more corrupt the people become. Mm. And with Fred Waterford gone by season five, that's kind of as yeah. close as Putnam was going to get to the ring. And it did not sit well upon him. <laughs> you alluded to the flashbacks and, you know, we never got a Putnam one, but did you kind of invent a backstory for him? Or speak to the writers, you know, who was he in a past life, do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it, I, I would have loved to have seen it. I mean, I think, you know, Ever and I have talked about this a little bit, but, you know, I think they met pre-Gilead. I don't think they were a, a marriage made in Gilead. And, um, and I've thought about this a little bit, so I, I, this isn't a word I'd throw around, but like, I think he was a plutocrat kind of, mm -hmm. I think Putnam was more, got into this more as this is a way to consolidate wealth and power more than Putnam ultimately was an ideologue, like some of the people in Gilead mm. who, who were just, I think he believed in what he was talking about. And I believe there's a scene, I think in season one, where I, I 
you just catch Fred and I talking in the hall and I, and I say something about this women, that's what they, you know, we gave them too much. Um, I forget exactly what I say, but it's clear that he, he believes these ideas, but I think he was, I think he was a rich guy. I think he was somebody who was in some kind of shipping or, or, or business that made mm. him very valuable to, to Gilead, you know, logistics or something like that. And then kind of loved watching the world sort of, compress around him. And he liked that. I think some of the people who were more pure of spirit in terms of what they wanted fared better in Gilead because they could be more absolute. And I think he was easily corruptible. <laughs> That's really fascinating hearing your thoughts on his backstory, a shipping logistics magnet. <laughs> I love well, it. Their um, house is huge. I mean, I yeah. have to say like just the location that we're in in Toronto when we pull up to it, it's just insane. I mean, it's great to go, you know, it's great to go to the Waterford's house and what that set was. And it was, and it was gorgeous. I would love to have my house look sort of like that, <laughs> that kitchen. I picture that kitchen and I keep yeah. going like someday when we nice remodel kitchen. our kitchen, I want that kitchen. That is a fantastic <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> But Putnam's house is just is just so blown out. The ceilings mm. are you know forty feet tall, and the artwork is is crazy. There's a pool right off. I mean, it's even in the last season we have a scene in the pool house where Serena comes in and she talks about like this is how I think we should do the funeral. That's literally that's that's not like a second location. That wow. was all in in the actual Putnam house, and so you have to kind of imagine. You know, even though he was down a peg probably from from Price or or Waterford along the way, it wasn't financially that he mm, was down. That's interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you about a particular scene this season. Mm-hmm, what was it like filming the scene with Esther where you're making her eat that piece of chocolate because it was so uncomfortable and creepy to watch and we didn't even know the full magnitude of what that scene meant at that time? Is that yeah. a difficult scene to film as well? Yeah, I mean, I have... I have a 13 year old daughter. So, um, you know, who actually, who actually was on the set the day I got shot. Oh, you know, wow. I took her, <laughs> she was on a break from school and my wife is a theater director. And I was like, all right, I'm taking Naomi to, to Toronto. Um, and she's, you know, she's, she's a city kid. So it's not, not much is going to, going to phase her. She thought it was boring most, mostly, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, it's terrible. Now, I will say Lizzie, who directed that episode, who's a, who's just the most brilliant director there is, I, I think McKenna and I met each other on the day and we were both actors and she's a fantastic actor. And we both knew what we had to do. We knew what we had to accomplish in that scene. And we kind of just met in that space together and, and did what was there. Now, what we didn't discuss, which I thought was really interesting, was what happens what happens when that scene ends? You know, we didn't know when we filmed that scene, at least McKenna, at least I didn't know. I, sh- I shouldn't say that about McKenna. I didn't know that that scene directly followed on to a rape um, scene. I knew that was going to, um, mm. but we filmed in sequence with the scene in the pool house with Serena where I came in and it was right. At, it was, and we did those in order and that was the next scene we filmed. And I came into that and Lizzie came over to me and she said, maybe you should untuck your shirt and come into, you come into the scene a little bit late. And she was, and she was like, because just so you know, what's, you know, what's coming, what actually happened in that scene is what you think probably is going to happen in that scene. And it was actually, it was a lovely, it was a lovely gift from a director to an actor because Sometimes you you know you overplay something to try to hide it, and in that capacity, it was easy to just be in the moment 
with McKenna mm-hmm. and play what it was, which was absolutely creepy enough. Yeah. Um, but the weird thing for me, stepping into Putnam's head is I think he thinks he's giving her a gift in some way. God. And so that's, you know, it isn't, it isn't a hard scene for Putnam. Putnam thinks it's great. It's, which is, it's hard. I mean, it was icky. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing not icky about it. But again, what isn't icky about it is presenting that as a thing that happens to people authentically and, you know, letting that story live and have people be able to respond to it. Not, I think, I think if you wink at it, you do a disservice to everybody who's working on it. Yeah, absolutely. And just on Lizzie directing, can you talk a bit more about what it was like to be directed by her? Because you guys don't actually have any scenes together. So you're not acting together. She's just sort of your director. She's, you know, I, I told her this. So I I think she's generationally talented. Like as as an actor, I I've said this before, I've said this to her face, but I and you know, I, there are these long sections of parenthetical that are written about June's inner dialogue in the script. You know, they can go on a page and a half. And I've never seen an actor basically transcribe that scene through through looks on the camera. She can absolutely tell you, you could you could sit down and transcribe exactly what Bruce wrote from from what you get in the monitor from watching Lizzie work, which I just think is incredible it's just so it's so particular so extraordinary she's so alive and she's the same way as a director and she knows not only how to film things beautifully but she knows these characters and this world as well as anybody does and she's also incredibly particular to each actor because we're also all friends and we all have spent time on the set and she has observed how certain people like to work certain people like to have headphones on and be in their own space and and really get into it and she may throw a breadcrumb to that person some people like to laugh 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 right up to the take i'll let you guess <laughs> that might be um and uh and then just kind of seamlessly roll into into a take and she knows how every single person works. She knows how, how exactly what they're looking for, exactly how to get there. And it's just insane to me that she's as good as she is that quickly. It's it's really awe-inspiring. I mean, when we filmed the funeral, Fred's funeral, which was the biggest, if not the biggest, it was one of the biggest things that we ever filmed just with all mm-hmm. the extras. And we looked at the the breakdown of what those days were going to be shooting. And it was just this drone shot and that drone shot in front. And it was, I think they had blocked it out for two and a half days. And, you know, and that was what it would have taken. And she just managed to pick things off when we finished. It was freezing out. So everyone was a bit miserable and she just knocked it off in a day. I think she was just, it was just incredible. And it looks, it looks incredible. And then the dance stuff, you know, commingled with Serena. It's just, it's just, it's awesome. So, I mean, I, I I can only say that she is as satisfying a director to watch her work visually as she is to work with and collaborate with as an actor because you she will just drop something in that is like oxygen to a fire and step away and you go and you do it. And it's it's incredibly rewarding mm-hmm. to work with her. Yeah. Anytime, if you listen, Lizzie, anytime, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Nice. And we'll pick out a couple more scenes to um to um, sure. talk about if we could, especially your final episode. I mean, um, you know, that grotesque, I want to say locker room talk that, you know, to invoke the uh, previous occupant of the White House um, with Lawrence and Nick by the fireside. I'd love to talk through that scene and um, oh, yeah, 
so much fun to do that. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I knew I knew where we were going. I didn't know I didn't know I was you know, spoiler alert, I didn't, I don't know who's, who wouldn't know now what's going on, but uh, I, I didn't know that I was going to, going to the upper Gilead in the sky until, <laughs> until one day we were, we were actually at the funeral and I got a call from my agent saying like, you know, Bruce had called or, and, um, uh, or maybe it was the producers who had called. And I, my first reaction was like, well, you, yeah, you don't, you can't kick the puppy and then not get it taken out. And it, and I I felt passionately about TV shows that I love like The Sopranos or you know Game of Thrones or prestige TV where you know in this golden age that things have consequences. I think if you get this far in a show and you just move chess pieces up and back and, and nothing ever happens and there's and people don't it doesn't feel as brutal as you imagine the brutality of the world to be, then you sort of lose the, the veracity of the world. So I was actually, I thought, yeah, the Putnam would probably, there is a power struggle below him and there's probably a power struggle to the sides of him. And he's now stepped out twice and he doesn't seem like he has a great idea to how to, for how to move forward. So yeah, they would probably take me out. And so I was, I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. We'll see how how we go. And so at that point, it was like, how how much can I lay in an alternative point of view from what I knew Matt, where Max and Brad were and to try mm-hmm. to own that as much as possible. And Eva, who directed that episode, who was just also just absolutely extraordinary to work with, she talked about how, you know, the different philosophies between it was about isolationism as as an idea for a country to move forward as opposed to sort of modernization and stepping into it. And, you know, Putnam is like, is an isolationist. He wants it to be, we don't need them. We don't want them. That's really this, that's really the, this, the next scene really with Brad later, or maybe it's actually, that may be a precursor. That's actually, we feel, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the order in which we film. That's the scene where Brad and I are talking about new Bethlehem that I was just sort of referring to, okay. but um yeah. The scene with with Max and Brad, I love both of those guys as as actors and human beings, and they're just so much fun to play with. And you know, Max is just Nick's impossible to read. He's so inscrutable so mm-hmm. often, and I think Putnam thinks he has Nick's confidence, and I think he thinks he's looking to be a kind of bigger man for him and make fun of, of Lawrence. And so it's, again, he does not see the trap being laid at all. And that's, I think, good writing. Um, You know, his hubris is what walks him right into the bear trap. And how, yeah. (laughs) And of course, then the uh, brunch with Naomi. Um, I'd love to talk about your dynamic with Eva Carradine um, and kind of riding this wave with her <laughs> as Warren and Naomi. I have to say I love her um, line, like, what did you do? <laughs> um, over the she, knows, she knows it's not good. There's not even something good that's there. <laughs> I bought you a car. We got a new car. It's black. And it's got the, um, ever over these five years has become just one of my closest buds. We're both... U.S. based. There, most of us are actually. I won't say most of us. We we're from all over. We have there's some fantastic Canadian actors who are, are wonderful on the show. There's L.A. actors. There's New York actors. There's British actors. Australian actors. 
but ever and I sort of split the coast. So she's Los Angeles, I'm New York. And we sort of meet in this strange Gilead world for the last five years and, you know, socialize and have a fantastic time. And, and it's like this weird otherworldly place where we build this relationship there. And, um, we both have families, our kids are close to the same age. I love her husband, Kobe, who's a great guy. And we, she's very fond of Jen, uh, just through, you know, they actually haven't met. I've been lucky enough to meet Kobe, but she hasn't been to New York, but, uh, and we charted out this really fun relationship. They have a kind of brittleness with each other that is not at all like us. We're both cut up in goofs and, and you know, are going out to eat all the time and, and mm-hmm. having a glass of wine when the show, when, <laughs> you know, the shooting is done at the end of the night. And I've introduced <laughs> her into good coffee and she's, you know, she, she's, <laughs> she drops sandwiches on the floor of the Shangri-La hotel, you know, um, and, um, uh, She's, she's great. And, and and it's so funny when I watch the show, it's so that, that character is so not who she is. She really is actually she, sort of shape-shifting and in, into who, from who she is. And she puts on that teal and she, there's just something so kind of wiry and, you know, high strung about her that is just not who she is as a human being. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that there was a point when they were, I think they were in love and then they were sort of like a, a little bit of a Lord and Lady uh, Macbeth and sort of, yeah. you know, trying to kind of be like, wow, we're in this together. And, you know, first it's their wealth. Now they have power. Now they have influence. Now, and now they, now they have a kid and which is in that world is yeah. they are just moving up and up and up and up. And again, if Putnam, I think had more of an eye on a bigger idea rather than just maintaining what he had and wanting more of it, they probably could have been, leaders in Gilead for a while. Um, She certainly doesn't step out of line. She's pretty great, you know, within reason, you know, (laughs) know, as a horrible human being, she's terrific. Um, But um, I mean, even this season though, it's been interesting to see a lot of the the commander's wives sort of having to reconcile what's happened. Her scene with Janine is really touching and, you know, and then we've grown. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, you've been on, we've been on a show it's five seasons, but it's six plus years because of COVID where, mm. you know, how this is stretched out and the world has changed and we've all grown up and we're in a different place. And it feels like the show has evolved with the world and has evolved yeah. with us as we've gotten older. And it's, that's really rewarding to do. Speaking of the evolution, I know you, you've you been an avid photographer on the set and you've shared some fantastic photos on um, your Instagram. Oh, thank and, you. And, yeah, no, so good. Such insights and with your trusty camera on set. Talk us through that kind of well, you know, when, when, do, when would you know to pick up the camera? And- you know, I've always wanted to be a photographer. It was one of the first things I loved doing when I was a kid and I got a camera when I was really young. And I thought if I had the guts and the guile to be a war photojournalist, I would have mm-hmm. loved to have done that. Yeah. I, I I think they're, those people are amazing. They mm-hmm. show us something that we don't get to ever see that contextualizes the horrors of the world. And they also kind of typically in any of the research I've done, they have to have that piece of metal in front or plastic in front of them and the glass in front of them kind of distances them from the events in in a way. And it's interesting on the set because if I'm lucky enough to, to be granted license to look on the set, it's sort of the opposite for me. I'm not distancing because I know these people. I'm, I'm actually trying to find moments that you don't see 
Um, mm. You know, I'm interested in like when the little girl walks past, when a little girl on set is sort of just walking past a bunch of actors dressed as handmaids sitting on the ground, which I, you know, I had this shot. I don't know if I posted that one, but it's, it, it's just so weird to see, <laughs> to see the kind of mundane world, you know, in the clothes of, of this. Yeah. And there's a picture I shot which I, I remember walking into the bathroom one day and this, one of the, the guardians had just left his machine gun on the floor while I was in the toilet. And it was just it was so bizarre and so commonplace. Um, it, it's, it's very strange. I mean, it's strange to be eating Swedish fish surrounded by guys with AR-15s that are all fake. You know, it's like at the craft service table. And <laughs> and that's something I just love. I love to capture. I mean, they, the show does an amazing job capturing the absolute beauty of that darkness. And so I don't, you know, that I don't know that there's anything new that I will show that's different than or better than what the cinematographers are trying to show you about Gilead. But what I can show you is how Gilead is made. And, and, and I'm interested, really interested in the glamour of the non-glamour of it all. Mm. Yeah. I mean, given how big the show has been a part of your life and, and sounds like you have a lot of affection for the people you've worked with, you've talked about how you've made sense of Putnam's death. Um, sort of, you know, he had to kick the can because he kicked the puppy. The puppy um, right. <laughs> but have, were you bummed to be leaving the show when you found out he was going to be killed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's yes. I mean, I, I, you'd be completely lying if you didn't. I mean, it's a, I've loved going up to Toronto. I mean, from, from New York, it's a very quick jaunt for me to get up there. It's, you know, I get to LaGuardia Airport and I'm up to Toronto in a hotel you know, in two hours or it's an, it's an hour flight. And then, you know, you know, you're going to a place where that people really care about the work, you know, and sometimes you go to a show and it's, it's fun or it's, it's not fun. And then you're just, you're punching a clock, but this show from the start, and I've, I've told this story before, but it's true. Like I, I didn't know what this show was going to be until the moment I first arrived in Toronto and I went into the costume shop and I was skeptical. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know if this was going to be like a children of men or something. I, I couldn't quite mm -hmm. figure out where this was going to lie. And yeah. I opened the door to the costume shop to have my first fitting and I saw Anne Crabtree's clothes. Yeah. And I've never had this before. I probably will never have it since. I just went, well, this is going to win every award. This is, <laughs> this is, it is so clear that this, like opened up to like the main line of somebody's emotional truth. It, it, it felt so on, on point. And, and I, you could just tell, like I saw those crimson reds and was like, this is going to, this is going to be something bigger than just the, the pieces. And it, and it was, and, and I don't mean to be self-referential because it's, you know, also how it's juxtaposed against, the horrors of the times that we're living in right now and how hard it is that it amplifies the experience of making and watching this show. Yeah. But it's, I, I, I've loved every time I've, I've been up there because it feels like those opportunities in, in an actor's career to do something that actually is not just entertainment, but has social value. Those are rare. And to be able to do that with people who are as sensitive as this company of actors can be and as artful as the writers and all of the production people are, that's it's, I will miss it. I'll miss it also because the food's really great in Toronto <laughs> and I will miss my friends and I will miss lots of that, but it was worth it. It was worth it for the, the absolute gasps. 
And for it to have all my, you know, parent friends at school go, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> what I, you, know, you should have warned me last night. I'm like, I can't warn you. That's, I'm not allowed. Literally, I'm not allowed to warn you. What do, what do you want from me? <laughs> Amazing. That would have been some interesting school pickup conversations, yeah. I'm sure. Yes. At least the, it was better than the conversations than after the chocolate day scene. And nobody would look, looked at me. I was mm. like, I'm never getting a play date again at my house. I'm done. <laughs> um, Fair. Uh, well, now you've left the show, they can't fire you. Um, can you tell us you know, right. how this all ends? Oh, yeah. I'll tell you every every single thing. How do you want to do um, <laughs> <laughs> No, you know, the, the truth is, I don't, I don't know. I, and I don't know that any of it, you know, that's one of the beauties about working on a show like this. I think there are, I think there are only a few people who, who have more than the next two or three episodes, know, you know, knowing where they're going. It keeps you in the moment. You know, certainly Bruce knows and certainly Bruce knows how it's, it's aiming towards something else. I think, I don't know if there's another book out there and I, I am, but I, I don't know. I, I get to, you know, it's unlucky because I get, I have been a fan of this show for five seasons and I will get to, I will get to visit my friends on the, on the weekly and <laughs> who knows there's, there are lots of flashbacks. So hopefully Putnam, yep. hopefully we'll get that flashback at the carnival where I popped the balloon for, <laughs> <laughs> for Naomi and I handed a big teddy bear. I imagine that was, you know, that's definitely something that we did. <laughs> Lovely date. Will you keep watching um the show? Do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've also been prescient in a way about where we're going. So I, you know, somehow they have a crystal ball. So hopefully, hopefully next year will be, you know, just the, the brightest, sunniest version of, uh, of current events. I, we're not. I like your optimism. <laughs> yeah. Look, thank you so much. This has been fascinating and, and delightful. And truly, thank you for, for Putnam across the years. He's been, um, you know, we've been appalled but um, amazed as well. He's added so much to the Handmaid's Watching experience. So thank you. Oh, th- and thank you. I Honestly, it's, you know, I've, I started my career as like a theatre actor. And one of the big things we miss as theatre actors is that immediate response to when you do film and TV, you film and it's months later and really smart critical response that you guys do is like getting some of that back it's it's such it's really exciting to listen to people respond to the show and even though it's past when we did it you know any actor would be lying to say that they don't think that's fascinating to hear Mm -hmm. how their work is interpreted and so i've loved listening to you guys talk about the show and and (laughs) so thank you Oh, That's so that. lovely. Are you saying you actually listen to Eyes on Gilead? <laughs> I mean, I, I say, you know, if I'm in the episode, I might. I might. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> no, I, I definitely am. So thank you. Stephen Cunningham, thank you so much. And, you know, hopefully see you in see you in more things soon. Yes, there'll be some more things popping up. So I, am I always as hateful? I think there's a couple that I'm slightly <laughs> less hateful. So, uh, so stay tuned. Look forward to those. <laughs> Bye. He was so good. He was great. I I actually love speaking to all of the actors and actually everyone we've spoken to involved in the show. They are so reflective and so like have thought through so deeply their role in the show and what the show means and and all of that. It's such a it's so wonderful to hear. It's it's actually the best insight. But it just seems everyone's really engaged intellectually with what they're doing and that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, the connection to the real world, it's makes it so much a richer watching experience doesn't it yeah and he was yeah he's lovely in real life everyone everyone bad is lovely in real life i mean that's kind of <laughs> great you know <laughs> that's good it's a relief yeah so thanks for listening 
we hope that helped. Um, we're off to go and count down the hours until the season five finale drops at SBS On Demand on Wednesday afternoon and screens on Thursday on SBS. Thanks again to Stephen Kunkin and to Sana Kadar for joining me in the interview today. Heidi and Natalie will be back next time to recap the finale. Thank you for listening. We'd love to know what you made of Stephen's insights about Putnam, especially his backstory that he's invented for him. So reach out on Twitter and you'll find me still there at anything but Fifi and use that hashtag eyes on Gilead. And Sana, how do we find you? At Sana underscore Kadar. And feel free to leave feedback and give us a rating on the podcast app you're listening to us on today. It helps other people to find the show. Eyes on Gilead is produced by me, Fiona Williams, and edited and mixed by Jeremy Wilmot. Until next time, the finale. Don't let the bastards grind you down. It's amazing what just getting out of Gilead will do to a person, right? You know.